I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Corey. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'm also doing well. Big grins on our faces. Today, we are going to discuss the last of our King Lear episodes. And I think it's a little bit poetic that the topic we chose to talk about at the end of King Lear is old age slash aging. Right. So the idea for this episode came from the saying around the actor playing Lear in any production that goes, when you have the stamina to play Lear, you're too young. But when you have the age to play Lear, you don't have the stamina. So we want mm-hmm. to look at how age was viewed both in Shakespeare's time. Was this potentially a major factor in actually writing the play? Mm-hmm. And then 
how does age factor into the actual text of the play? Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And what does old age mean for an early modern Londoner? Right. Yeah. The lifespan is certainly not the same as it is today. And I mean, we may have like... I actually would love to start off talking about that because I think this is a misconception. Are you ready? Your jaw just dropped. Yes. So um, in your Uh impression, (laughs) what is the average lifespan? I've read and heard, and I think we said in our intro series, it was like 42 or something like that. I know that there's a wide variety of living conditions for an early modern Londoner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm imagining that this misconception has something to do with us placing the median age of all Londoners when people who are poor don't have the same living conditions as those who are rich or part of the aristocracy or in the court. Mm-hmm. But tell me, am I onto something? You are very much onto something. Cool. So this jaw-dropping realization comes from constituting old age in early modern English literature from Queen Elizabeth to King Lear, which is going to be one of our major sources for this episode. Mm-hmm. And it is by Christopher mm-hmm. Martin. And it is this study of, well, old age in early modern England, mm-hmm. early modern English literature from Queen Elizabeth's time to the writing of King Lear. Okay. What Christopher Martin says, he references another article by Creighton Gilbert, When Did a Man of the Renaissance Grow Old? And says that nowadays we commonly recognize that the period's high rate of infant mortality skews that misleading average of 35-year lifespan. Mm -hmm. So because we have so many childhood diseases that have since been eradicated through modern science, we no longer have the average being pulled down by early deaths. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So he quotes Pat Thane's Old Age in English History, published in 2000, and Mm -hmm. has been a very authoritative work on the topic of age in early modern England. So, quote, Those who survived the hazardous earlier years of life in medieval and early modern England had a respectable chance of living at least into what would now be defined as middle age, that is, their late Mm. 40s or 50s, and often for longer still. Even in medieval times, the death of someone in their later 30s was not regarded as timely or normal. Mm. Then he references Creighton Gilbert's discussion in a pioneering article, When Did a Man of the Renaissance Grow Old?, which talks about how Erasmus, Vasari, and even Michelangelo who lived to be almost 90, all seem to regard 40 as elderly, but lived much longer. Hmm. Okay. So it sounds like there are other factors. I'm not speaking in totality, but once you get past the childhood hump where certain diseases can kill you, you are much more likely to live a life that's longer, Mm -hmm. closer to us even, than our misconception of like 35. Correct. Yeah. So it's really more, again, like we were talking about, the quality of life, deaths, but you can Mm -hmm. even get past that. They start to think of people as old at around 50, women a little bit earlier because there are outward signs of women's aging Uh because of when menopause hits, it's basically post-menopause, you are an old woman. (sighs) They flatter women in the early modern Yeah, they're really, really kind to us. (laughs) Yeah, there's even an official record from William Harrison which comes from the extended prefaces he contributed to Hollinshed's Chronicles of 1577-1587, which will be familiar mm-hmm. to our listeners who listen to our Hollinshed's Chronicles mini-episode. Mm-hmm. So for this official record, William Harrison even observes that the Elizabethan citizenry enjoyed long existences and left good-looking corpses. Interesting. He says that some do live an hundred years very many unto four score. As for three score, it is taken but for our entrance into age. So that in Britain, no man ah. is said to wax old until he draw unto three score. So 60. Yeah. Which is double our preconceived notion. Right. And 60 nowadays is around the time of retirement, what we consider like retirement age. Although 
it must be said that the early modern English did not have the same idea of retirement as post-industrial <laughs> modern society does of like. Yeah, with like labor laws and all <laughs> right, of those. Pensions bells and, and things like that. Yeah. And they had plenty of people who made it that far. Cool. So what was it like? So Pat Thane, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote Old Age in English History, sets forth that, quote, there were significant numbers of visibly old people in past communities, whatever their chronological ages, and they had a strong presence in public conscience. Uh-huh. So what did that look like, you asked? I Yes. Well, it depends on where you were. I know we're talking about early modern England, but elsewhere in early modern Europe, people handled old age differently. Mm-hmm. You're saying where you were, that's not just socially, it's geographically, like if you live in a place with harsh weather versus luxurious weather. Right. And basically all throughout Europe, we have these Renaissance ideas of this development of the concept of self, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things that they return to is these Greek and Latin Roman texts on health and like how to govern and things like that. And in there, they find inspiration for how to deal with old people. So yeah, it was... <laughs> that sounds like such a leer, a leer statement, how to deal with how old to people. deal with old people. So there's like this discussion going on of what it means to be old. There's some who are like, it is this dignified thing to become old. They are sources of wisdom. And then there's Petrarch, for example, who's like, mm. nope, age senegence is sinister. It's this stealthy nemesis that is just like, aging is going to happen. We don't age gracefully. <laughs> So there's a lot of shame surrounding the aging process. Yeah. And then over a century after Petrarch's death, there's this book, Gabriel Zerbe's Gerontocomia, which was the first modern treatise on care for the elderly is published. Mm. And it confronts time's crippling impact on both the mind and body. Mm -hmm. And even the Venetian Republic's political gerontocracy, where the privileging of age was legislated rather than merely being preached. So there's this like Italian influence in how we're seeing court life. And in Venice, the Venetian Republic has this political gerontocracy where you are privileged to run the city. Like you cannot be elected until you are of a certain age, elderly. Elderly. Okay. One of the advantages that they quote is that, you know, you don't have to put up with elderly men for long when you elect (laughs) them old. Yeah. I know it feels like we still do now. Um, That's exactly what I was going to say. It's like, oh, that sounds like uh, the United States' three branches. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's not exactly clear of how much the Italian writings on age entered Tudor England and, like, influenced it. But the nation did come into full contact with a sort of early modern glorification of youth Mm. Mm -hmm. at the expense of age. And we see that in Baldessari's Castiglione's Il Cortigiano. It's translated by Sir Thomas Hobie in 1561. And that translation like recognizes and amplifies gerontophobic dispositions of the courtly society of the book. And this was mm-hmm. just like super, super influential. We have this concept of aging that's growing and it is not a good thing to age. But it had been before Plutarch. It had been dignified. It could be dignified. Well, the ancient Greeks and Romans were like debating like Cicero. Cicero has this writing, and this is even debated, Hobie's translation that's like very, very gerontophobic. Mm. We also get a new translation of Cicero's Senectute, (laughs) which basically revises the character of Cato to be, instead of this kind of doddering old man who is just rambling on and on, Cato is like a challenge to the characterization of men who are past their prime. Mm. That makes sense. We're rediscovering these classic Greek and Roman literatures, and we're writing kind of new versions of them. Interpreting them for Hooter England. And they're influencing the early modern ideas of aging. Mm -hmm. We're reading different ideas about old age and aging. We have this aging monarch. Right. Which we haven't had in a while because both her brother and her sister died young. Correct. She is unmarried. She has left no heir. (laughs) She refuses to name an heir towards the end of her life. And then she 
seems to have her own sense of the vulnerability of this. She, in her late 40s, has this courtship with this young Duke of France who later becomes Henry II of France, where he's 20 years younger than her. And modern opinion is, we don't know if we're comfortable with this age gap relationship. and We don't know how serious to take it. Because mm-hmm. why would he actually want to marry somebody who can't give him children? The general vibe. Right. Which at the same time, I'm thinking back on when we looked at Twelfth Night and aging lovers. Aging courtiers, right? A- yeah, aging courtiers. Mm-hmm. And her courtiers are aging. The courtiers who have been her courtiers for the majority of her life are dying. And she's getting new uh-huh. younger ones who are questioning her relevance. Yeah. So towards the end of her life, we get also this pastoral literature coming about in her final two decades that it all really conspicuously and uniquely foregrounds old age. So we also get Sydney's Arcadia, which is really concerned with an older generation's anxiety over the transfer of authority to younger hands. That sounds like it's very pointed. Yep. And in Shakespeare, we see As You Like It which I know we're going to get to a little bit later. And just a lot of art that's like in response to the psychological ramifications of sexual desire in senescence in old Mm. age. So, Mm -hmm. and then even Elizabeth herself writes some poetry about aging. I did not know that Elizabeth dabbled in poetry. Oh, she did. Mm. Oh, she did. So can you read? Her poem called When I Was Fair and Young. Okay. It's dated to be after her courtship with Ellen Song. Uh Go ahead and read it out loud for our listeners. Okay. When I was fair and young, then favor graced me. Of many was I sought their mistress for to be. But I did scorn them all and answered them, therefore, go, 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 seek some other where. Importune me no more. How many weeping eyes I made to pine and woe. How many sighing hearts I have not skill to show. But I, the prouder, grew and still the spake therefore, Go, 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 seek some other where, importune me no more. Then spake fair Venus's son, that proud victorious boy, saying, You dainty dame, for that you be so coy, I will so pluck your plumes as you shall say no more. Go, 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 seek some other where, importune me no more. As soon as he had said, such change grew in my breast that neither night nor day I could take any rest. Wherefore I did repent that I had said before, go, 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 seek some other where, importune me no more. Oh. So when she was fair and young, she's sending these men away Mm -hmm. and making men cry, making them sigh. Yeah. She's been really proud Mm -hmm. about it. And then... And then fair Venus's son. Cupid. Uh Uh-huh. Said, I will so pluck your plumes as you shall say no more. So he doesn't want her to reject. He's going to redress her yeah. a little bit and he's going to get his revenge. Uh-huh. And she repent what she had said mm-hmm. before. This Alanson affair was, it kind of feels like a last chance. And then it's like, oh, she's not the hot young thing she used to yeah. be. And she regrets having said, go, go, go. Seek no more. Am I reading that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Elizabeth, the Queen of England, knows that people have opinions of her age and her desirableness mm-hmm. as she grows older and she's not young and fair. And that's something she's reflecting on. Yeah. And there's diaries from courtiers who remark on from like this point on, which is about the age of right. 40, that she continues to like comport herself as young. Mm-hmm. So we know some things about like how Elizabeth did visibly age. She had not great teeth. She started wearing wigs. In her final decade, there's discourse about how she is simultaneously immune to old age and also she is aging rapidly. And we see it particularly in a surviving history from the account of André Hirault, Sieur de May, a French ambassador who visited the queen in the winter of 1597 to 98. Mm -hmm. He writes a journal and he talks about how she has a great command of classical texts, that her mind is still super sharp. 
she takes off her glove in front of him and he's like, she's looking frail, but her skin looks mm. nice. Like she moisturizes. Yeah, she probably does. I mean, with like lead, but you know. You know, whatever keeps you young. Whatever keeps you young. And he like estimates her age as actually younger than she was. Mm -hmm. But he's also like a little bit surprised because she basically wears fashion that he deems as too young for her age. Oh. Like she's too old to wear this uh -huh. type of clothing. He writes, so this is about his first time in her privy chamber. He finds her strangely attired in a dress of silver gauze. She kept the front of her dress open and one could see the whole of her bosom and passing low. And often she would open the front of this robe with her hands as if she was too hot. Her bosom is somewhat wrinkled as well, as one can see, for the collar that she wears round her neck. But lower down, her flesh is exceeding white and delicate, as so far as one could see. So she's wearing, like, low-cut yeah. dresses. I have heard that she did like to have her boobs out. Up and out. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, she's a little old for this, I think. Yeah. But even still, it sounds like he can't quite pinpoint exactly how old she is. Right. You know, there's no, like, clear, like, binary categorization of she's an old woman because yeah. somehow she's in between old and young he thinks she's like no more than 60 at this point and she's approaching 70 okay and this is in stark contrast to lord burgley who is around 77 at the time demaze thinks that burgley is 82 uh -huh. because the queen seems to resist aging but burgley is so decrepit that he lets himself be carried to meetings in a chair. Oh, geez. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he's leaning into the aging process. Yeah. Um, and then there's also King Philip II of Spain is this 70-year-old who is also old and feeble and is rumored to be kept alive by force. And Oh, no. <laughs> he's like, just let me go. Yeah. He sounds like Gloucester. Yeah. Let me go. Stop trying to keep me. In the journal, uh, fed with liquor blown into his throat by the Infanta. Uh huh. There's just a lot of, she seems vivacious. And that's another thing that is said throughout this time of, yeah, you kind of become old between like 40, 50 ish. 50. But somebody can be 60 and be young, and somebody can be 60 and be old. It's a spirit thing. Spirit thing. And this kind of also, yeah, like loops back to that piece by Cicero where the character of Cato essentially argues that you take care of yourself if you you know exercise eat right mm -hmm. you can still be really active in your old age yeah so basically like at 64 uh -huh. she definitely like lets her body be exposed and inviting to an audience but also she is very sensitive to her body's capacity to deteriorate to endure and to impress others in mm -hmm. how it is weak and strong and she kind of is embracing her age is the argument that christopher martin makes Okay. I have one little fun fact. I love fun facts. The period's vocabulary is also keeping up with this kind of concept of aging. Uh-huh. And we see in the middle of the 16th century, the word constitution goes from purely meaning external bodies of laws and regulations formulated by social consensus or other superior authority. Uh -huh. And we get the modern application for the first time, of the physical nature or character of the body in regard to healthiness, strength, vitality, etc. This concept of, like, the body's condition is the constitution. Right. So all of that is happening. We have this old queen who's, like, visibly aging in front of all of her subjects. Mm -hmm. Her court is changing over, and there's these new courtiers doubting her relevance a little bit. Yeah. A few decades prior, she'd had this kind of very nationally traumatic courtship with this French duke that was 20 years younger than her. And now she's in her 60s and resistant to naming an heir. Right. In her old age, she's also had, you know, this fight against Mary Stuart, who <laughs> uh -huh. is actively trying to kill her um, and scheme. And then she finally does name her successor as... King James, and he mm -hmm. reportedly conjectured that she would endure as long as the sun and moon. He's a feisty one. Mm -hmm. He's got guns ablazing. Yeah. She wrote to him, 
in a letter dated August 21st, 1600. So about three years before she died. Mm -hmm. Though a king I be, yet hath my funeral been prepared as I hear, long or I suppose their labor shall be needful, whereat I smile, supposing that such facts may make them readier for it than I. So she so was like, I ready am for not her to die than she is. To die. And James was like, she's going to outlast the sun and the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then she does pass away. Right. Because she is not a vampire. And we get King Lear. Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare has opinions about old age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to point out the ages of man speech. Everyone knows this. This is all the world's a stage. Jaquise and as you like it. And... This is not the only instance in which we see Shakespeare discussing uh, the role of man in his plays. But for Shakespeare, for Jacquees, there's infant, student, lover, soldier, justice. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side. His youthful hose well saved a world too wide for his shrunk shank. And his big manly voice turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. And last scene of all, that ends this strange eventful history, is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. Mm -hmm. The lean and slippered pantaloon and the second childishness and mere oblivion does not sound appealing. Now, um, and just really quickly, So that also comes from, just to circle back really quickly to how constitution being of the body was this kind of newer idea, and Mm -hmm. we get a translation of Andreas Laurentius's Discourse on Old Age into English in 1599, Mm. where Richard Serflet also lays out these kind of terms of life that we see echoed in the Ages of Man speech. Okay. What are they? So we see the subdividing of a life cycle into... Infancy, adolescency, youth, man's age, and old age, which containeth all the rest of our life. And he does say that he has an important qualifier at the end that says, I would not that from hence any man should so tie himself to the number of years, but as that he should make youth and old age necessarily to depend thereupon, but that he would rather judge thereof by the rule of temperature and constitution of the body. For every man that is cold and dry is he whom I may call old. There are very many which become old men at forty, and again there are an infinite sort, which are young men at sixty. There are some constitutions that grow old very speedily, and others very slowly. They which are of a sanguine complexion grow old very slowly, because they have great store of heat and moisture. Melancholic men, which are cold and dry, become old in shorter time. Mm, okay, so Hamlet is going to age quicker than Falstaff. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> so the original source material and the translation sounds much kinder towards aging and recognizes that not everyone is the same and there's a wide spectrum of how one can age. Mm-hmm. That translation comes out the same year as you like it is believed to be written Mm -hmm. 1599 ah okay so we don't know what shakespeare read or didn't read he could have read it he could have heard people talking about it but we can say he was definitely aware of this idea (laughs) yeah he probably was i mean it's just like when we talk about demonology there's a very end news from scotland there's a very good chance that he was aware of it you know, and mm-hmm. we literally don't know what he was reading or right. you know, talking about. But this was something that was very popular in pop, pop early modern pop culture. Yeah. But his is much kinder, I would say, than Shakespeare's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perhaps one of the least kind. Well, I don't know if it's least kind, but King Lear has a pretty limited view of or yeah. has very it's interesting. like. Uh-huh. I was talking about this yesterday in terms of King Lear and like what King Lear says about aging. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to compare it to that speech in As You Like It mm-hmm. and the depiction of old age in As You Like It because we have Adam, mm-hmm. who is Orlando's old and <laughs> decrepit, really, uh-huh. servant. And we also have these older courtiers dating young 
farmer's daughters in the woods. Right. And yeah, I was actually like, I wonder if, because As You Like It is before Queen Elizabeth passes away. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this like, old people don't really know what they're doing. Old people, um, you know, here's a celebration of youth and young love. Yeah. In response to. But then King Lear has this shift after she does pass away. Yeah. This is purely my conjecture. Could it have been a supposition of, well, what could have happened? If. Right. So she didn't name an heir for forever. It was really like. That was a stressful time for England. Stressful. A a lot of internal conflict. It also caused, you know, a lot of social political conflict. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I wonder if this is just kind of a fictional, like, well, what if the old monarch had turned over power to the younger this younger generation yeah what would that look like what would that look like yeah and especially acknowledging that she had this turnover in her court where Mm -hmm. all of a sudden her courtiers were younger than her and trying to advise her you know yeah yeah they're of a different generation it's i imagine it would be a bit difficult as somebody who's 20 30 years younger to be trying to right implement change or establish a new england yeah and so yeah i was like i wonder if it's this rhetorical question being asked right or if it's allegorical of here's what could have happened had you know she'd done a peaceful transition of power to mary stewart or if she had married that french guy well the reading i did touched a little bit on that yo tell me more yeah so her death elicited a more general retrospection on her life and on her reign so while in the last you know 20 30 years subjects were critical they were maybe wanting a more youthful court and monarch when she died there was retrospection and there was a rich nostalgia for the queen which of course Mm. james hated but there was (laughs) of course he did (laughs) but there was also more somber recollections of the generational conflict that had been present in elizabeth's final decade so um martin does posit that it's no coincidence that the lear legend with that nightmarish ingratitude, would re-enter the national imagination. It's, yeah, there's a 1610 revision. And um, so depending on if you're doing the folio or the quarto. First performed 1606. You're talking about there's that 1608 quarto, an unofficial 1619 quarto, and then the 1623 first folio. And every single one is like drastically different. Okay, yeah. So that would be years after her death where people would be reflecting on Elizabeth's reign, Elizabeth's life, and their life with James. So, And we've talked about this before of like how there's like yeah. speeches that are attributed to completely different people. There's completely different lines written. Right. Different characterizations. So within this amount of time that Lear was being performed and rewritten, there was also a mass nostalgia and reconsideration of elizabeth's reign so one i guess would have to go through each quarto and you know the folio each revision and see which ones may be kinder towards the older generation which ones may be less kind Um, and that might be an indication of where the national imagination was with thinking about elizabeth Mm -hmm. and age especially for an aging monarch Mm. so although it's not a direct commentary Martin wrote that Shakespeare's tragedy is crafted in the refracted afterglow of Elizabeth's confrontations with younger forces eager to claim the political stage. So in this respect, King Lear asks what it means to grow old in power. So Elizabethan drama represents old age on the stage more frequently and casually than other periods. So one representation of age is the cynics, the age lover of Latin comedies, the pattern of senior folly and obstructionism like Hegeus in Midsummer, And then there are also some representations of this stock character who are jealous, puritanical. They get cuckolded by a younger wife. Another one you talked about in our Twelfth Night discussion was the pantaloon mm. of the Commedia dell'arte, which was the yeah. ill-humored elder authority. Yeah. So I wonder if the first one that you talked about, because there's another Commedia dell'arte old man archetype, which is the Geraint. Mm. which is the doddering old man mm-hmm. who's much maligned, loses his money. 
And that's also where we get gerontological. Gerontology mm. is the same root right. word. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm going to very quickly discuss a couple of other plays that have old people and the crux of what mm -hmm. they are in those plays. There's uh, the comic heroine, Mr. S from Gamer Gurton's Needle, and mm -hmm. that person is fully capable of delivering on threats to those who call her a withered witch. Uh, there's also the title character of John Lilly's Mother Bombi, who struggles with charges of witchcraft and general gerontophobia. There's the old man in Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, who seeks to offer redemption for Faustus but can't save him. Lily's Endymion suffers a curse where he falls asleep, a youth, and then he wakes up decades later as a decrepit old man, and they treat him as if he's in this fearsome state of decay. And there's also a character in an anonymous play, New Custom, and that's a morality play that echoes the Puritan ideology that the older generation is exhausted and spiritually worn out. So we see very dronophobic representations on Elizabethan stages. Now let's talk about King Lear. Shakespeare's King Lear participates in the tradition of portrayal of aged resignations at the hands of ambitious predatory youth. And we see that in some of those other plays. Let's look at what Lear and characters in Lear say about age and the aged characters. Ooh, okay. Mm -hmm. So the younger generation in this play drives to assume power over their elders' activities, and they project their own image of senescence onto the aged subjects. And both Lear and Gloucester experience this, though they have different circumstances, but they also both suffer humiliation because they are trespassing these suitable boundaries for their age. Mm. So Lear's eldest daughters, once Cordelia has been dismissed, display their bias towards Lear. Goneril says, You see how full of change his age is. Regan responds, Tis infirmity of his age, yet he hath ever but slenderly known himself. The best and soundest of his time hath been but rash. Then must we look from his age to receive not alone the imperfections of long engraft condition, but therewith the unruly waywardness that inform and choleric years bring with them. So both of these daughters start to create a narrative that suits their youthful convenience and act on it. Prior to this, you know, they're flattering their father and then they start to make a lot of comments on their father's age. And if you're looking at ageism, that can be a tool that the daughters use to control their father. Goneril gets really nasty towards Lear in Act 1, Scene 4. Mm -hmm. She says, you are old and reverend, you should be wise. And then she also says, be then desired by her that else will take the thing she begs, a little to disquantify your train, and the remainders that shall still depend to be such men as may besort your age, which know themselves in you. So Goneril is determining what is suitable for Lear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Regan also has a line. I don't know if you're going to get to this, but she also has a line that I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, you are old and weak and you should act old. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sir, you are old. Nature in your stands on the very verge of his confine. You should be ruled and led by some discretion that discerns your state better than yourself. Is that what you're looking at or something else? There's another one, but I'm, they say things like the that same thing. all over. Yeah. 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 Like Regan and Goneril have these views of their father and through their own like narrative of how you know a person his age should be acting they create the boundaries for him and then they use that against him when he oversteps them if he's not acting suitably mm -hmm. cordelia has a different outlook rather than the control that the sisters have she's a bit condescending towards him a bit patronizing she treats him like a child and she pities him she also calls him a child changed. And Lear actually has opinions himself about his aging. So he gets met with a lot of indifference and hostility or dismissal from his daughters. And he says things like, you see me here, you gods, a poor old man, as full of grief as age, wretched in both. And he calls himself your slave, a poor, infirm, weak, and despised old man. I think it's interesting. One thing I didn't mention earlier is that a lot of the idea of old age in early modern England is this you can act your age 
Like you can be old and appear young. Like we talked about like that humors quote. Mm -hmm. And we see that in Lear of like Lear's not acting the idea of old age. And that Martin includes that old age for this time period is really like the time when people's perceptions of you become true Mm. and become the thing that is most true about you. So we are very independent. Even today, like we're very independent. We're very self-driven. And then there's like a point where what other people think of you is more important than how young you feel or Mm. how old you feel. Lear does assume that thinking about all of the ways that uh, Goneril and Regan qualify him, the language that they use towards him and about him. And that is of more Mm -hmm. concern to him than whether he is or is not young at heart or if he's old and decrepit. Like that wears on him. That (laughs) that gets to him. He takes it so seriously. And to be fair, they are weaponizing his age. They're using it against him as they talk about him and as they talk to him. But whatever opinion he had of himself as a young king, he doesn't seem to be holding on to that. And he's, you know, or whatever age he feels yeah. he is in conflict with the way that his daughters view the way him. that everyone else views his capacity. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And Cordelia pities him. You know, she treats him like a child. She's like, oh, poor father. And he wakes up from his recovery and he still feels very old and pitiable. And it's not until after he's arrested and he and Cordelia are facing imprisonment that he starts to tap into his younger self. You know, he starts seeing a future in the cell. And then when she's killed, he has the strength to carry her on stage. He howls and he, you know, starts uh, enacting the diplomacy and the pomp of being a king to all those that are on stage until he dies. Mm-hmm. That way that people view age and dictate it for him yeah, is like that. It's like his Achilles heel. Mm-hmm. Finally, when he finally accepts it is when he dies. Yeah. Lear is part of the elder generation and he's in a struggle for author- authority and power with his daughters. Gloucester experiences the same thing where he has two sons. One of them is trying to get rid of the elder. And Kent also Mm -hmm. is an older man and Cornwall and Regan, when they don't like how he's acting because he's being a knave and granted he is being a jerk to Oswald, but he's acting outside of the parameters of the old man behavior and he ends up getting put in the stocks. So yeah, all three of the elderly characters, you know, if we're looking at generational conflict, they're all in constant conflict with their younger generation who wants to assert some form of power and dictate how they should behave. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned to me acceptance Uh and the acceptance of old age being kind of like what leads to Mm -hmm. death for Lear, because that links really well into my other reading, which is looking ahead to our modern day and kind of the modern lenses that we can approach Mm -hmm. Lear with, um, specifically this idea of aging and old age. I read an article by Susan Snyder entitled King Lear and the Psychology mm-hmm. of Dying, which interprets the plot of King Lear through the Kubler-Ross stages of mm-hmm. dying and grief. The Kubler-Ross model of the five stages of dying and grief postulates that those who are experiencing grief go through a series mm-hmm. of five emotions, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Ah, okay. It was introduced by Swiss-American psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her 1969 book, On Death and Dying, uh, which was inspired by her work with terminally ill patients. Shakespeare obviously was not familiar with this model, did not write Mm -hmm. King Lear to be an interpretation of this model. However, it is just interesting to note that the rhythm of Lear's character development fits these five Mm. stages pretty well have things changed as like who we are as human Mm -hmm. beings in the past 400 years maybe this is something that points to no not really much has changed he was just writing what old people go through so i'll just quickly because you so wonderfully kind of laid out plot points Mm -hmm. of the play i'm just going to quickly talk about when uh susan snyder points them out in her essay so she says that denial is pretty instant because when 
Lear banishes Kent. He is using the kingly authority that he just said he didn't want to have anymore. Um, So it's an act of denial of that handing over of royal Mm -hmm. authority. Then for anger, the way that he responds to his daughter's cruelty and his own exposure caused Lear to recognize some of his true state. And he responds with anger and goes out onto the heath, goes out into the storm, and is constantly saying, why me? Why me? Why me? Then we go through the mock trial, and Snyder argues that that is the bargaining process, where Lear promises to be good, saying, I'll forbear. I will be the pattern of all patients. Right. And then, of course, the promises, like those of Kubler-Ross's patients, aren't kept. Yeah. Then for depression, he's pretty exhausted by the end of Act 4. And when he's finally reunited with Cordelia, the reunion scene hints at a sort of preparatory grief. Yeah. He's not as happy to see her as he should be. That's true. The vigor of his anger and madness is spent. He's very depleted and very uh, regretful. We see this instead mirrored more strongly in the parallel of Gloucester, who's very much in despair and sees the gods as careless children who kill men as casually as flies at that point. And then Lear's last trauma is not his own death, but Cordelia's. Quote, he does not go gently into that good night. No, he does not. But in accepting Cordelia as dead, he himself becomes ready to die. Yeah. So yeah, a more modern interpretation of aging and old age in Lear. That's fascinating because I think that you are right. Granted, she wrote this in 1969, but 2022, that still resonates we are not that much different. There are still the similar parts of human nature that Shakespeare mm-hmm. was writing about that we feel today and perhaps why we still feel very compelled to perform King Lear. Right. Especially because we talked in our Stuff to Chew on about how there was a bit of a lull with King Lear and then it was revamped around like World War Two, mm-hmm. And... I would argue that progressively we have a greater sense of self than we used to. And we are very obsessed with age as a society. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's not that far off. A lot of people try to take their own age into their own hands. There's a reason why this play is resonating right now, right? I mean, sounds like Queen Elizabeth would have gotten Botox maybe if it were available to her. And so dealing with some of those same anxieties Mm -hmm. still. Yeah. Yeah, whether this play and all of the revisions are a reflection of an aged queen or not, Lear, like Elizabeth, does seem to have this capacity to negotiate her own old age. Both of them seem to have this capacity. And like you said, Botox or whatever it is, you know, I'm sure she would have been dyeing her hair if she saw Grace coming in. Well, she wore a wig because Grace came in. Exactly. She just would have done the 2022 version. Or she lost her hair. Or lost. Whichever one you want. Which makes me wonder what the motive is when people put Lear on the stage and how they decide to portray him. Because I guess the senile old man was a very popular way to mm-hmm. portray him until the 1840s. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting because that really mirrors back to what I was saying earlier about Cicero's writing. The character of Cato was seen as this senile old man who just drones on and mm-hmm. on and on until Thomas Newton wrote this new translation in the late 1500s where all of a sudden Cato was a much more vibrant old man Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like an interesting echo of that yeah and it seems like that debate is cyclical within multiple Mm -hmm. you know centuries yeah and then the question is how does this affect putting on the play how does this affect casting how does this affect characterization Mm -hmm. because you could go the senile old man route yeah You can also armchair diagnose him if you want to. Or you could play a man who's quite upset, as I think anyone would be if they're feeling kicked out and pushed aside and dismissed by the younger generation because Mm -hmm. of the motivations of the younger generation who, like the courtiers in Elizabeth's time, are like, yeah, we've had enough of you. You You need to go. You need to sit down and you need to let us take care of the country. Mm -hmm. I think that's also like why of late there's been in the past few decades more and more interpretations with a female identified Lear Mm -hmm. dealing with age because 
that conversation has been more and more prevalent in our modern day of women's ability to age, especially in especially right. actors. And like, do you allow yourself to do that? Or do you get preventative right. Botox? You know, how much skincare is out there to prevent wrinkles right now? Yeah. Million so, billion dollar industry. I think it's interesting to think about that. Maybe this play was written as a reflection on an aging woman in power. Yeah, that's really cool. But it's also a discussion of aging mm-hmm. men in power. And now is it kind of returning to that? Well, what happens when women age? Because now it's more acceptable for men to age. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Like George Clooney can still be a leading man opposite a woman who's half his age. Mm-hmm. But if you cast Meryl Streep, she's still playing it really has to great. Be Stanley Tucci. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, maybe this play right now is resonating more and will be performed more by a female identifying actor because mm-hmm. of the national conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Catherine Hunter's King Lear that I talked about in the sexism episode in Lear mm-hmm. is returning to the Globe this summer. So we'll have to keep an eye out for that production and see if it's available to stream anywhere. Yeah. I'm hoping that they're going to put it up on the Shakespeare's Globe player. Yeah. As we yeah. wrap up our season of Lear and it's coming out this summer. Yeah. So yeah. So that everyone is aging in early modern England, Elizabethan England and Lear. And to emphasize the social anxieties and the generational conflict that is so prevalent in Elizabeth's day up to our own. I want to wrap this up by emphasizing the most villainous character in this play's opinion of the older generation. So our big baddie, Edmund, says in Act 3, Scene 3, the younger rises when the old doth fall. Thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Much Ado About Nothing, Act 4, Scene 2, said by Dogberry. Flat burglary as ever was committed.